Well, welcome to Mount Airy Baptist Church. Those who are just now tuning in uh, tonight, we are continuing our study of the intertestamental period. And uh, last week we began looking at that time between the Old and the New Testaments. It's one of the most overlooked eras of Bible history, really. Uh, we, people study the Old Testament, they study the New Testament, but one of the most overlooked eras of, of true Bible history would be that 400 years that are sometimes called the 400 silent years. But as I've said last week, uh, though God may have been silent, He was very active preparing the world for the birth of the Savior and for the spread of the gospel. So we're going to try to understand this period by looking at it from four different angles. We started this last Wednesday, and we talked about the things that you see here on the board. And by the way, uh, if you weren't here last Wednesday, uh, this is available online. I would encourage you strongly to go back and watch that as we covered three of the four major uh, world empires that occurred during this 400-year history. So we're going to take this time frame, this 400 years, and look at it really from four different angles. First angle is to look at it historically. What happened in history during that time? That's what we started last week, and that's where I want to pick up. Uh, these are the four world empires that ruled over the Jews during that intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testaments. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, we talked about this last week. I'm not going to get into it, but these four world empires correspond to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue in Daniel chapter 2. And so last week we talked about uh, Babylon and Persia and Greece. Tonight we're going to pick up here the fourth world empire, Rome, and then we'll get into the other factors of the intertestamental period. The Roman period, if you're taking notes and kind of pick up where we started or where we left off last time, the Roman period covers the years 63 B.C., to 70 A.D. So we're talking about this fourth world empire. Uh, this, if you go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, uh, this would be the legs of iron. If you remember, Daniel had this, this uh, dream of, of the statue that was made of four different materials. This would be the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2. So here's what happened. In 63 B.C., Greek, uh, Greece was in power. They were the world-dominating power. But in 63 B.C., a Roman general named Pompey uh, came into power and he defeated uh, Judea, or the Greeks in Judea, for the nation of Rome. Herod the Great became, eventually, uh, the Roman-appointed governor of Judea. After, after Rome became the world-dominant empire, 63 B.C., Herod the Great was brought into Rome to be the Roman-appointed governor. Uh, it's interesting, the Roman Senate gave him a title. You know what the title was? They gave him the title, King of the Jews. He liked that title to such a degree that, do you remember when Jesus was later born, that the wise men or the magi came asking Herod, where is this king of the Jews we've heard about that is to be born? And Herod consulted with some people and they said, oh yeah, there is a king of the Jews supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And do you remember what Herod did? Herod slaughtered all the male babies in Bethlehem because there was a rival to his throne in his mind. He was the Roman designated king of the Jews. And to hear that 
There was another baby that was born in Bethlehem that was to be king of the Jews. That's why he went in and killed all the baby, the male babies, two years of age and younger. Now let me tell you basically, real briefly, about Rome and how they engaged the people, uh, the Jews there in the land of Palestine. Rome gave the Jews in Palestine a lot of flexibility. They gave them a lot of leeway. There was little interference by Rome in the daily lives of the Jews, except that Rome taxed the Jews pretty heavily. And you see that throughout the New Testament. This idea of like Matthew, the tax collector. He was collecting taxes for Rome. So Rome taxed the Jews. They got a lot of money out of the Jews, but they didn't really interfere very much with their day-to-day life. Now, of course, Rome is the nation that eventually crucified Jesus. It was not the Jews that crucified Jesus. They, they're the ones that brought him to the Romans, but it was the Romans who crucified Jesus on a Roman cross. The one thing I want you to write down as you look at this area, the one thing I want you to write down, during this Roman period, there were three cultures that were mixed together. Write this down. There was the Roman culture. There was the Greek culture, and there was the Hebrew culture. All three of these cultures were woven together in the land of Israel during this time. In fact, I want to show you something real quick in Scripture. Go to John chapter 19. Open your Bibles real quickly. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, this is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says in verses 19 and 20, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then verse 20, Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why was the sign hanging over Jesus' head at his crucifixion written in those three languages? Because Aramaic was the language of the Jews. Uh, they also spoke Hebrew, of course, but Aramaic was the language of the Jews. Latin was the official language of Rome. Greek, of course, was the common language of the people. And so we see, even at his crucifixion, this idea that we have three cultures that are woven together in the land of Palestine, during the time of Jesus. And those three cultures impacted and shaped the landscape of the New Testament. So, so that's Rome, and I told you last week I wasn't going to spend a lot of time here because I want to talk about what happened after Rome came into power. And so we've looked at those 400 years historically. I want to switch gears now. I want to look at that same time period, those same 400 years, but this time I want to look at it from the lens of literature. During those 400 years, what kind of literature was produced? There were three significant works of literature that came out of this period between the Old and the New Testaments. I'm going to tell you about two of them right now, and then we're going to cover the third one a little bit later in the study tonight. And you'll see why I'm saving it towards the end. But three different types of literature, significant literary works, came out of this time. The first one is called Apocrypha. I'll spell that for you. A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. Apocrypha, the name is derived from a Greek word that means hidden. The Apocrypha, I want to make sure you hear this. 
The Apocrypha were, was written during the intertestamental period, during those 400 years between the Old and New Testament, but they are not considered canonical scripture. They are not considered to be part of our Bible. Okay? Now, I'll tell you why in a moment, why this is so important for you to know this. You need to understand that the Apocrypha has some uh, value in that they show us what it was like in the culture of that day. They show us what some of the world religions were like in that day. They show us something about the politics of that day and the economy of that day. But the Apocrypha are not considered sacred scripture. In fact, what you'll find is when you read the Apocrypha, much of the Apocrypha is in conflict with the Scripture. And so the only reason I mention the Apocrypha at all is because occasionally you will see somebody talk about the lost books of the Bible. That They're talking about the Apocrypha or the hidden books of the Bible. You get it on the Internet. I, I don't recommend you do this, but you get it on the Internet and you'll see all kinds of that stuff about the lost books, the hidden books, as if there's some kind of secret society. And the Apocrypha came about during this intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. We won't get into why, but I just wanted you to know about it, that when it came about, and I want you to realize this is not considered sacred canonical scripture. Okay? Uh, now, some groups do recognize the Apocrypha, uh, but, but most people do not consider it part of our Bible. Now, the second very important literary thing that came out of this 400 silent years, this 400 years intertestamental period, called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the spring of 1947, an Arab shepherd boy was actually looking for a stray goat, goat and he was searching in the hills that overlooked the Dead Sea. Lots of caves in that area. And he threw a rock into a cave thinking maybe his goat had gone in that cave. And when he threw the rock into the cave, it hit something. It was a clink. And so when he went inside the cave, he found out that the cave was filled with these, these large jars. Uh, they, they were clay jars that had lids on them. And he began to look at it, and he actually made the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. Uh, numerous clay jars were filled with ancient documents and sacred scriptures, uh, and these were produced during this intertestamental period of time. Uh, the documents that were in those clay jars, some of them were Old Testament books like Psalms and Deuteronomy and, and those kind of books. Uh, Isaiah, they found a 24-foot scroll of Isaiah, the complete book of Isaiah, 24-foot scroll uh, in those clay jars. It also had in those clay jars some apocrypha, it also had some apocalyptic works from other writers. Also some books that were supposedly from the heroes of the faith. And there's a big name for those, but I'm not going to give it to you. But, and business documents were in those clay jars. Business receipts were in those clay jars. Literally thousands of documents. I think it was something like 10 years that they were excavating all of this. Cave after cave after cave after cave. Thousands of documents came from that time. And the reason it is significant for us is because when you look at the scriptures that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they provide us copies of the Old Testament scriptures that were a thousand years closer to the original document than we had previously had. What I mean by that is we don't have what's called any original manuscripts. We don't have like the original document of Isaiah. 
But when they found that 24-foot scroll of Isaiah, it was a thousand years closer to the original than any other copy of Isaiah we had. And so this was a very significant find. And I'm I'm trying to emphasize that most of these documents were written during this 400-year period. Now the big question is, who put them there? Who put the documents in those clay jars in those caves in the Qumran community? Well, you'll have to wait a few minutes to get the answer to that one, okay? So, I'm running through this because I want to make sure that we have time towards the end to really dig into something. So, we're looking at this 400-year period. We've looked at it from the the lens of history uh, last week and a little bit tonight. We've looked at it briefly from the lens of literature. I want to go a little deeper now and talk about it from the lens of first-century Judaism. The Judaism of Jesus' day, to a large extent, uh, came about during the intertestamental period. In other words, if, if, if you looked at an Old Testament Jew, uh, and then, or a Jew in the Old Testament, and then, then if you looked at a Jew in the New Testament, there would be significant differences. And all of the, a lot of that, I should say, occurred during this 400-year time. And so, let's talk about how Judaism developed during the intertestamental period because it really sets the stage for the coming of Jesus. First of all, uh, write down this word, diaspora, diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, diaspora. The diaspora or the dispersion is what that word means, is this idea of the dispersion of the people of Israel. During the Babylonian captivity, of course, remember, you you see Babylon way over there on the left. During the Babylonian captivity, the people, the Jews were taken from Israel and were taken to Babylon for 70 years. And that's when this diaspora began, this dispersion of the Jews. But it also continued to occur during this 400-year period. In other words, this diaspora, this spreading out of the Jews away from the land of Israel. It started in the Babylonian captivity, but it really was accelerated during these 400 years. Let me show you something in the Bible. Go to James chapter 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. He says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. That's the diaspora. The scattering of the Jews around the world. The scattering of the Jews away from the land of Israel. And Jews relocating around the world, in the nations. Now why would that be significant? Let me tell you. Jews who lived outside of Palestine were, of course cut off from the temple. And not only were they cut off from the temple, they were surrounded by pagan idolatry. Let's take, for example, let's take, for example, Babylon. When the Jews were defeated by the Babylonians and they carried thousands of Jews away from Israel all the way over to to Babylon and they spent 70 years in that country. They were separated from the temple for 70 years. 
Now, here's the question. Not only were they separated from the, from the temple for 70 years, they were surrounded by a pagan people, the Babylonians. So if you, if you have grown up in the land of Israel, you have grown up around the temple, and all of a sudden, this, this world power comes in and removes you from the land, takes you away from the temple, and now you, you're spending 70 years in captivity away from the temple, surrounded by pagan people. Here's the question. How do you guard and practice your faith? You don't have the temple to go to. How do you guard and practice your faith? So, here's what they did. Starting in the Babylonian time, they turned the religious focus to two things they still had. They still had the Torah, the law. The first five books of the Old Testament. The first five books that Moses wrote of the Old Testament. They still had copies of the Torah. Yes, they'd been taken away from the homeland. Yes, they'd been taken away from the temple. Yes, they could not offer sacrifices anymore. But one thing they still had, they still had copies of the Torah. The second thing that they had was this. They still had the belief that they were God's chosen people. That had not been taken away from them. They were not living in the homeland. They were not living near the temple. But they were still God's chosen people who still had the Torah. And so during this diaspora, during this dispersion, something significant happened. And that's the second thing I want you to write. So, so if you're taking notes, we're talking, of, we're talking about the first century Judaism. Number one is diaspora. Number two is synagogues. Synagogues. Synagogues came about during this diaspora. Synagogues came about during the Babylonian captivity. Let me tell you what synagogues were. Synagogues were local places of worship that were developed during this time. And the word synagogue literally means assembly. It simply means assembly, an assembly of people. Now, again, let me say that they started these assemblies of people. They started in the Babylonian captivity, but they grew in number during the intertestamental period. It's interesting, as the years progressed, they kind of had a, a system of starting a synagogue. Here, here was the rule. If you wanted to start a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 active male members, 13 years of age or older. Because they would be the ones who would supervise the religious practices and take care of the congregation. And so wherever the Jews are, they decided we don't have the temple, or we don't have access to the temple, but we can still gather as God's people to study the Torah. We can still gather as God's people to pray. We can still gather as God's people to worship. And so they started these assemblies. They started these synagogues. Anywhere they had at least 10 Jews, 10 male Jews, 13 years of age or older, they had enough people to start an assembly, to start a synagogue. And so, watch this. This is so good. Judaism became a faith that could be practiced wherever you could carry the Torah. Any place you could carry the Torah and you had at least 10 male Jews, you could start a synagogue there. And the emphasis of the synagogue, make sure you write this down, the emphasis on, in the synagogue was on teaching and reading the Scripture so that it could be lived out. And in many, in many ways, that prepared the way 
for the Christian gospel. I wish I had time to, to dig into some scriptures with you, but let me get, at least give you the scripture reference. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 14. Let's just read it. I can't. Luke chapter 4. I'll, I'll just read this one, I promise. That's all. Our, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. This is so good. The Bible says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is right after the temptation, right after he starts his ministry, his public ministry. Jesus goes back to his hometown after he starts his public ministry, after his baptism, after his temptation. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on Shabbat, or on Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. I've got that underlined in my Bible. It was his custom to go to synagogue every Sabbath. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. That, that was part of the, of the worship. There was always someone who read from the Torah, or read from the sacred scripture. Not just the Torah, but sacred scripture. And those... The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and release the oppressed who proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, verse 20, so dramatic. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I love that. But where did he do it? In the synagogue. In the assembly. And it says, and that was his custom. His custom was to gather with God's people on Shabbat. And to study the scripture and to read the scripture and to worship and to pray. And in fact, uh, he gets run out of town right after this. Run, run out of Nazareth. And he went to Capernaum, and in, I think it might be in the same chapter or the next chapter. He goes to Capernaum, and guess where he ends up in Capernaum? In the synagogue. I just want you to understand something about the synagogue and why this is so important. This became one of the places where Jesus turned to do ministry. Because he already had an assembly of people. He already had a group of people gathering for worship. This was a wonderful audience to start with, to share with them the good news. Because remember, God's eternal plan was, even when he said to Abraham way back there, God's eternal plan was, through the nation of Israel, the good news would be shared. So who do you start sharing the good news with? You help the, you help the Jews understand it, so they can share it. So he starts in the synagogue. By the way, we don't have time to read this one. Paul always had the habit on his missionary journeys... He always started out at the synagogue. When he would go share the gospel, wherever he went across the world, he always found a synagogue. That was because of the, of the diaspora, remember? The diaspora, the spreading of the Jews, and they started these little assemblies everywhere they went. And so when Paul started going out on missionary journeys, sharing the gospel, he, his, his habit was to go to the synagogue first and share the gospel there. And if he was received well, he'd stay, and if he wasn't received, he moved on. All right, so again, we're, we're talking about first century Judaism. We talked about the diaspora. We talked about the synagogues. I, I want to talk about 
very briefly, the, the Jewish sects that arose, S-E-C-T-S, the numerous, there's uh, four of them really, three uh, major ones and then a fourth one. So during this intertestamental period of time, one of the changes between Old Testament Jew and New Testament Jew is that there was a sect of Judaism that arose called Pharisees. You don't see Pharisees in the Old Testament. That comes about in the New Testament days. The Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separate. Separate. They wanted to preserve everything that Moses had taught. Their, their goal as a Pharisee, they were very strict as far as as far as observing the law of Moses. They wanted to build a hedge of protection around the law of Moses. They were, write this down, they were the party of the synagogues. They were primarily in the synagogues. And, you, be sure to write this down, the Pharisees resisted Hellenization. Remember the Greeks wanted to Hellenize the world, they wanted to make the, the whole world Greek. The Pharisees really pushed against that because they said, no, we're Jews, we're not Greeks. And so they really pushed against that. Uh, they wanted to live a righteous life in a world that had drastically changed from the days of Moses. And so they were trying to build a fence or a hedge of protection around the law of Moses because though society had changed drastically, the law of Moses was still there. So the Pharisees, they were the guardians of the law of Moses. Very strict. All right, so they mean, the word means separate. They were separate from others. All right, the, the second group that came out of Judaism during this time was the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the synagogue party. The Sadducees were the temple party. They controlled the high priesthood. They held a high position in society because of that, because they were in charge of the temple. They, they were viewed high in society. But they also, look up here for a moment, they had one hand in religion and one hand in politics. That was the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a very strong interest in maintaining the status quo. They didn't want to, they didn't watch, look up here, they didn't want to ruffle the feathers of Rome. So long as we can keep Rome happy, we can keep living a good life. They had a lot of political power. They had a lot of influence, religiously and politically. In fact, they were more liberal, and they didn't believe in supernatural events uh, like the resurrection. Uh, they rejected those kind of things because those things were not found in the first five books of the Bible. So they rejected a lot of that. That was the Sadducees. One hand in religion, one hand in politics. Let's go along to make sure everything stays the same because so, we got a pretty good thing going on here. That was the Sadducees, the temple party. Number three, uh, the third Jewish sect was the Essenes. They were a small separatist group. They separated themselves from, from uh, the people in Jerusalem. They believed in the strict observance of the law, but they considered the temple priesthood to be corrupt. Now, this you really need to listen here. They were convinced that they, the Essenes, were the true remnant of God's people. And that the temple uh, had been corrupted. And so they separated themselves from Judaism. And they devoted themselves to personal purity and to the study of Scripture. And they moved. They moved out of Jerusalem. And they moved to a little desert community called Qumran. Does that sound familiar? Did, were you listening a few minutes ago? 
they went to a little desert community called Qumran. It's right near the Dead Sea. And they, they were an apocalyptic group. They really believed that they were preparing themselves for the final war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. And so as they prepared themselves for this final war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness, they wrote a lot of, they preserved the scriptures. And they wrote all kinds of documents. They were the ones who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes. Uh, You can go there today and you can see the excavation of their little communities, their little houses. And they devoted themselves to daily studying. And they'd take a break and go take another bath, a ritual bath come back, study some more, take a break, go take another ritual bath. Because they were committed to two things. They were committed to the Scripture, the study of Scripture, and they were committed to personal purity. Those were the Essenes. They separated from the rest of Judaism. And they isolated themselves in the Qumran community. And they are the ones who brought about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the, the last of the four groups, the lesser known of these four Jewish groups, is the Zealots. Now, the zealots in doctrine were very similar to the Pharisees. They believed, the, the, doc, they believed the, the Bible, the law, the Torah, just as strongly as the Pharisees. But the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the, the zealots took it a step further. The zealots believed that God was to be their only ruler. That there should be no ruler but God. And of course, who was ruling over their country? Rome. The zealots believed that that was against God's word. And so their goal was to overthrow Rome. Thus the name zealot. They were zealous for the overthrow of Rome. In fact, they believed because they were trying to preserve God's law and God's traditions, they believed that they were in the right to aggressively attack their oppressors. The zealots earned their name by carrying little daggers in the sleeve of their garments. Hidden in the sleeve of their garments. Little short daggers. And if they came up on a Roman soldier and no one else was around, it was their desire and their training to take that little dagger and to put it into the heart of a Roman soldier. And they felt like that they were justified, that they were serving God in doing so. That was the zealots. Now, I ran through all of that because of what I want to get to uh, in this last segment. So we talked about looking at this 400-year period of time from the lens of history, uh, looking at this 400-year uh, time from the lens of literature, looking at it from the first century Judaism lens, and now I just want to talk about four major events that occurred during this 400 years. And it really kind of ties together all of this. These four major events, uh, kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together in, with these four major events. All right, so you ready? Got your pen ready? Four major events, and this is, this is really the heart of what you need to understand. What God was doing to prepare the world for the Savior and to, for the spread of the gospel. Here's the first one. Greek became the common language of the people. Now, do you remember how Greek became the common language of the people? Remember? Alexander the Great? Alexander wanted to conquer the world, and he in fact did conquer the world. 
at least the, the Mediterranean world there. He conquered all of the Middle East. He conquered all the way down to, to uh, Egypt. And part of the area that he conquered was Israel. And his desire was to make the world... He was so influenced by the Greek culture, his desire was to make uh, the entire world Greek. Greek in culture and Greek in language. Remember those two things. Greek in culture and Greek in language. And so, for the entire Mediterranean world, from this point on, from this point until the days of the New Testament, the entire Mediterranean world spoke Greek. Now, I'm not saying they didn't have other languages. Other languages were spoken, but most people also spoke Greek. Just like in today's time, you go all over the world and lots of people speak English. That may not be their native language, but lots of people speak English. It's kind of the common language of the world. The common language of the world in that day was something called Koine Greek. K-O-I-N-E. K-O-I-N-E. The word koine means common. Common Greek. There's two kinds of Greek. There's classical Greek. This would be the Greek that's, that's used by the educated class in, in writing certain things. The classical Greek. But then there was the koine Greek. The koine Greek was the, was the Greek of the working class. The Greek of the common man, the fishermen, the farmers, the peasants, the housewives. It was the Greek of the common man. When I was in college and in seminary, when we took Greek, both in college and seminary, it was Koine Greek. Because that was the language of the New Testament. And I love this. Listen to this. God wanted His Word to be accessible to everyone, so He chose the common language of the day. Koine Greek, the, the common language that everybody spoke. Now watch this. So between the Old and the New Testament, God was preparing the world to hear the gospel because one of the things that happened through one of these world empires, everybody started speaking the same language. Makes it a lot easier when you want to go on a mission trip and share the gospel. Makes it a lot easier when you want to write a letter to the church at Corinth or the church at Philippi, if everybody's speaking Koine Greek. Makes it a lot easier to, to uh, share the gospel and grow the church if everybody's speaking the same language. So, that's one of the things that happened. Is, is One of the major events is Greek. The second one is something called the Septuagint. Septuagint. I'm going to be very brief here, but the Septuagint was basically a translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. Around 250 B.C., during the Ptolemaic period, we talked about the Ptolemaic period last, last week, but here's what happened. Because everyone was speaking Greek, even those who lived in Israel, many of those were losing their Hebrew. So how do you read the Scriptures? The Septuagint became the Bible of the Jews especially the Jews that were outside of Palestine. Because during that diaspora, when they went outside of Palestine, they lost a lot of them. They lost the ability to read Hebrew. And so they didn't have the Scriptures in their language anymore because they spoke Greek. So in, in 250 B.C., the, the Hebrew Scriptures were translated into Greek. Uh, by the way, the, I cannot stress, overstate the importance of this translation 
because it was available to the Jews who no longer spoke their ancestral language. And it was available, look up here, to all the, everyone around the world because they all spoke Greek. Now the Hebrew Scriptures were placed into the language of the people through the Septuagint. By the way, the Septuagint would have been the Bible that Jesus would have used. Also the Bible that the, the apostles would have used. Also the Bible that the missionary Paul and Peter would have used. I'm not saying Jesus never read from the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm just saying that the Septuagint would have been around during that time, during the days of Jesus. The Septuagint was a, a very common Scripture. Certainly, I'm sure Jesus could have read the Hebrew Bible as well and likely did. All right, so that's the Septuagint. We've got two more to go. And, and Well, okay, listen. Are we on number three, major events? The Peace of Rome. Just write down the Peace of Rome. I'll, I'll explain it to you. It's, it's called Pax Romana, P-A-X, and then the second word, R-O-M-A-N-A, Pax Romana. It means peace of Rome. And basically, when Rome became the world power, during the New Testament days, there was this worldwide peace, relatively speaking. That Rome was such a dominant power that there was worldwide peace. Now, how would that affect anything related to the Bible? Because there was this worldwide peace, once the missionaries started going out carrying the gospel around the world, it was easy for them to travel without much problem because wherever they went, there was peace in the world. The Pax Romana gave them the opportunity to take the gospel to various places because there was peace around the world. And then the next one closely related to that are Roman roads. During the intertestamental period, Roman roads were developed. A network of Rome, uh, Roman roads uh, I found this stat, I can't verify it, but I found this stat, I thought I'd give it to you. It is said that there were 250,000 miles of roads made around the world during this Roman period. And 50,000 miles of those roads were paved with stone pavers. Now, I've been to Rome many years ago. Uh, Billy, I think you went with us, didn't you? We walked on some of those stone pavers from the days of the Romans. They're still there today. You can walk on those stone pavers. And it said that the Romans built 50,000 miles of paved roads. Uh, so think about this. From the gospel perspective, watch what's happening. During the intertestamental period, watch what's happening. During that 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, right before the birth of Jesus, what's happening? Everybody starts speaking the same language. There is peace around the world. Rome builds roads around the world. The table is set to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Which brings us to the, the fourth thing tonight as far as major events. The fourth one is this, Jewish messianic expectation. What I mean by that is the Roman occupation impacted the religious landscape in a tremendous way. You see, remember all the way over here, Starting here, Israel was no longer an independent nation. Starting here with the Babylonians capturing them, they were always under somebody else's control. We talked about that last time. So when we come to Rome, and Rome is now in control. Rome is oppressing the Jews, they're leading, or they're, they're over the Jews. 
It's another pagan nation that's ruling over God's people. It's another pagan nation that's in control of God's people. Hope is running low, and faith is even lower, that they will ever be free again. History is proven. The last 400 years, they're not going to be free people. They became convinced during this intertestamental period that the only thing that could save them was the appearance of the Messiah. That their only hope to save them and their faith was Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament. And so during this Old Testament or during this intertestamental period, the common Jews of that day were primed and ready for Messiah. I want to show you this in Scripture. We just got a few more minutes, but I'm almost done. Matthew chapter 11. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Starting in verse 2. When John heard in prison, this is John the Baptist, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you this deliverer? John's in prison. He's being dominated by the Roman powers. Are you the one that can liberate us, or should we expect someone else? Go over real quickly, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy, Holy Spirit. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See that? Lord, is this the time? We've been looking for that for years, for centuries. And his own apostles, his own followers. We know you're Messiah, so is this the time you're going to restore power to Israel? The people were looking for deliverance of Israel from foreign domination. They were hoping that the Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom because they had been under four kingdoms for the last 400 years and they were hoping Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom. But perhaps the most important way that God molded the hearts of His people during this 400 years, the most important way that God worked throughout this 400 years was to at this point right here, to make them desperate for a Savior. I'm going to close with just one or two scriptures here. One is Galatians 4.4. God was working, if I could summarize the intertestamental period time, God was working 
to prepare the world, but also to prepare His people to make them desperate for a Savior. And all this laid the groundwork for the coming of Christ. And look how Paul wrote about this in Galatians 4 when he said, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights as sons. I want you to notice this phrase, but when the time had fully come. I believe Paul was talking somewhat about this time. That God had been working for 400 years to prepare the world for the arrival of the Savior. And when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. Remember, from the days of Malachi, here, from the days of Malachi, 400 years of silence, there was a famine from hearing the Word of God. God had not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. And when the days had fully come, God sent forth His Son. And I want to close, if I don't start preaching, with John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. After 400 years of silence, God had not sent a prophet. After 400 years of silence, John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. The Word became flesh. God hasn't spoken in 400 years. And the Word became flesh. God was going to speak in a new way. He was not going to speak through prophets anymore. Now, the Word. Who is the Word? Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh And He made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that ought ought to get you excited. After 400 years of silence, God working in this 400 years to prepare the world for the arrival of the Savior, God working in this 400 years to prepare the world for the spread of the gospel, everybody speaking the same language, Roman roads being built around the world, the peace of Rome, and all of a sudden, when the people were desperate for a Savior, the Word became flesh. That's powerful. God spoke again, but He did not speak through the voice of a mere human. He spoke again after 400 years, this time, the voice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's thank Him for that. God, we are grateful that You were doing more than we could ever imagine and more than I could ever explain between the Old and the New Testament. You were preparing the world for the arrival of Your Son and You were preparing the world for the spread of the Gospel. And You still want us to help spread that message. Show us how to do that better. Show us how to share this good news that the Word has now become flesh, made His dwelling among us, and He was the one who 
became full of grace and full of truth. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Well, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you Sunday. Don't forget about our classic car show and display, truck display, after our services. And also, don't forget, no 830 service, uh, but 945 until 11 o'clock. All right? Thanks.